We are on Leviticus chapter 13 and 14. In some ways, we're just going to kind of fly through this because, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, like when it comes to skin diseases and bodily discharges and that kind of stuff, we live in a modern day post-medical scientific community and we kind of like, duh, we know that's not good. The ancient world, they didn't think like that. I mean, they were a lot of times pre... I mean, they weren't morons. I mean, they built the pyramids, so... But they did not have that scientific um, bacteria, virus kind of an understanding of things. And they weren't able to take baths every single day like we do. So some of this needed to be laid out a little bit more clearly for them. And then the symbology. Where today is kind of like, if there's something growing on your skin, we know that's not good. And in fact, and they knew that was not good too. But we have, a, I mean, you just type it into Google and get this like classification on it. They didn't have that. Right? All they had was like a priest. And the priest wasn't a, a, a doctor. He just knew, yep, I know that's kind of bad because I've seen that a lot of times in other people. And that's contagious and that's not. And that's kind of all he knew. But we know so much more. So in that sense, we don't really have to go through if it's a yellow spot, it's a red spot, the hair's like wilting over, that kind of stuff. We're going to focus mostly on the point that God is trying to make because we can Google all that stuff so quickly anymore today. <laughs> This is uncleanliness due to skin disease. Remember, there were four things that made you unclean. Sin, touching dead bodies, skin diseases, and bodily discharges. Remember, also, the point is not to say that if you have this, you're sinning, or to have a skin disease means that you're being punished by God for some kind of sin. That is a possibility, when we get sick, one of the first things we should be asking, is there a sin in my life that is unconfessed and I'm suffering the consequences of that? If through prayer the Holy Spirit doesn't give you an answer, then it's just welcome to living in a fallen world. Okay, so, but at the same time, there's necessarily a guarantee. And once again, as they ask Jesus, is this guy blind because his parents sin or because he sinned? And Jesus answers like, neither. It's just because he lives in a fallen world and now the glory of God can be demonstrated in his life. That's important to remember as we go through these. God is not saying you're unclean in a sinful kind of a way. He's just trying to communicate a lesson, an idea to them of what uncleanliness means. And the main idea is this, is that the skin disease is kind of like sin. It's a very graphic illustration of sin, the contamination of it all, the spreading of it, the death that it will eventually bring. I mean, in some ways, if if you're not a believer, you're the walking dead. Um, and you're, you're just going through life slowly dying. And there's really no hope for you of ever getting over this virus of sin and dysfunctionality and a lack of hope, a lack of peace, a lack of joy. And the really the only in a pathetic 1980s kind of cliche, the only cure is Christ. And he's the only one that come in and kind of cleanse you. And that's kind of the picture that God is trying to communicate here is just like this skin disease is infiltrating your body and destroying your body and cutting you off from all the people that you love and you want to be with, so is sin. Sin is destroying you. It's destroying your life. It's cutting you off from people that you want to be with and you love. And if you don't get yourself dealt with on a proper level then it will eventually destroy you like the skin disease. 
And so in some ways it is a you're not safe for the community because this will spread and harm them physically. But most importantly, it's an image of sin in your life. And just like the clean and unclean animals is mostly trying to reinforce into them what it means to keep these two things separate, those who are unclean morally and those who are clean morally, so the skin disease becomes a graphic example. And that's the main idea is trying to be communicated. So as the person with the skin disease is removed from the community outside the camp, you are to realize that that's me. If I continue in unrepentant sin, if I refuse to make myself clean through sacrifices and ritual washings, then I too will be cut off from the Abrahamic covenant, and I won't receive the blessings. And so this becomes a graphic example of what sin is doing in our life, and that's exactly how God Christ uses that when we get to the Gospels, is if the idea is if he can heal you physically of your uncleanliness, then he can heal you internally of your uncleanness as well. And that idea is going to be set up, which leads us to the next point of this. There are no cures in Leviticus. There are no doctors. There are no cures whatsoever. Nowhere in Leviticus do you ever get the idea that if they have a red patch on their skin and it's going deeper and the hair is dying and it's spreading, then give them this kind of aloe plant or this root or that kind of, you, There is nothing there. They are not going to doctors. They are going to priests. And the priests are primarily responsible for determining whether you're contagious or not. If you're contagious, you're unclean and you're removed from the camp. If the progress slows down, stops, or begins to reverse and heal itself, then the priest goes and inspects you. And if you are then declared clean, you're allowed back into the community. That's it. There are no cures, which once again, this is emphasizing this isn't really about medicine. This is not really about health. This is really about an object lesson of what sin does in somebody's life. Now, you might seem like, well, that's kind of messed up, God. Like, you spend two chapters on skin diseases and not once do you give a cure? Well, for whatever reason, God is not really interested in bringing modern-day American medicine into the ancient world. He does not progress our technology for us. He does not progress our knowledge for us. He's more interested in our spiritual lives. Now, and I'm not saying God hasn't guided our, our knowledge of medicine or that kind of stuff in any way. I'm not saying that. But he doesn't magic wand and give you 2012 modern-day science kind of stuff or 17 or 3000 A.D. kind of medicine. He's dealing with the culture and what they understand at this point. But the other thing you have to understand is who is the ultimate healer? Yahweh. And the idea is that Yahweh uses all these things in our life for different reasons. Some people get cancer and God guides the doctors or miraculously heals you because that's what you need in your life to better know him and to better depend upon him. Other people go their entire life never being cured of cancer and eventually it kills them because that's what they need in order to draw them closer to God. And so you have to understand, just like today, when we ask the question, why does this person get healed and that person doesn't? Why did my friend over here get magic wand 
his cure of not being an alcoholic anymore, and yet I'm still struggling with this my entire life. We ask these questions all the time, and we're not given answers by God of one, why one person's healed and the other person isn't, why one person just gets over his addiction immediately and the other person struggles. Because the answer is ultimately God knows what you need to draw him into a relationship with him, make you completely dependent upon him to grow your character and make you an effective tool in the kingdom of God. And some people need cure and some people need that thorn in their flesh that never goes away like Paul cried out for. And so ultimately this isn't about getting cured. This is about God working in their life. And he's going to work in their life through the priests and the system that he set up. Does that make sense? That curing part is left up to us in our advantage of being in a time period where we have modern day medicine and in our relationship and our prayer life as people lay hands on us, as we pray, as we surrender to God and allow him to do. And even today we know that no matter how amazing we have come in modern day medicine, there's still a lot of things that we have no idea how to overcome. And there's a lot of sickness and diseases we've actually created because of our modern day medicine and stuff. And in, in the end, we're still at the mercy of a divine God who is orchestrating the world in the way that he sees fit to better draw people into the kingdom of God. And just like Job, we don't get answers to our questions in this area. But we have to know that God is good, even when he doesn't make sense. And so Leviticus is not about cures. Leviticus is about teaching a lesson to them about what sin does. Graphically, as you watch this, spiritually, that's the same thing. Does that make sense? The priests are here to determine what is clean or not. Now, some of your translations may still use the word leprosy. That is not an accurate translation. We used to think it is. It's not like because your translation is completely bad. It's there was a time period that we did not have a good understanding. But the word here is tesarat. And it's a lot of times translated as leprosy for two reasons. One, when the Greek Bible came along and they took the Hebrew and translated into Greek, the word that they chose for this Hebrew word was lepra. And a lot of people assume that lepra meant leprosy. However, it has nothing to do with leprosy. It's just phonetically similar. Just like S-U-N, son, and S-O-N, son, are phonetically similar, but they have nothing to do with each other. And so that led to the first error of assuming this is leprosy. The second reason is that there's passages that describe this skin disease being like snow. And immediately your first picture that comes to your mind is it must have been snow in a white sense. So a lot of translators added the white to clarify. Good intentions, but unfortunately misleading. Because now as we read other passages and break down the meaning of the word, like in Exodus 4 and Numbers 12 and 2 Kings 5, we realize that it wasn't being used in a snow-white sense, but in a snow-flaky sense. And it had nothing to do with the color, but more to do with the flakiness. Then also in later archaeology, we discover the fact that leprosy 
never, ever existed in this part of the world, in the Mediterranean kind of a region of the world, until after the Greeks came in. And so in the Second Testament, we do see a large amount of cases of leprosy. And the lepers that, um, lepers that um, Jesus heals are pretty much probably leprosy in the way that we know it. Um, but that didn't come until the Greeks came along. And as the Greeks brought the Eastern and Western worlds together, then, yay, not only roads are in trade, but also diseases begin to spread. And so this is not leprosy. So most translations today, and if you have a newer translation, like you can go to an NIV like back in 2005 and it'll say leprosy, but if you go to NIV maybe after 2011, it'll say skin disease. Um, now just translate skin disease. It could be many, many different reasons. The symptoms that are also described don't even match leprosy. All the symptoms as you read it mostly look as like rashes. Leprosy does not show up as a rash. There are some doctors who've come to this by book and read through the descriptions and they've kind of classified. There's no agreement among doctors of what skin diseases are being described. It could be for the reason of one, these skin diseases don't exist anymore today. And so when they look at them and like, yeah, that's kind of right, yeah, yeah, but we don't, that's not kind of, and it's maybe an a skin disease that doesn't exist anymore, so we don't know how to nail it. Or it could be that it is a skin disease that we have today, but after several thousand years, it's been very well mutated. And we know that diseases do mutate within like in, in our own lifetime, let alone thousands of years across culture and sea. And so scholars of their best ability have kind of classified these skin diseases. Leviticus 13, they think, is psoriasis. And look, don't ask me to explain what all these skin diseases are like. I've read some of them, and it's like they kind of all sound really bad to me. And I'm not a doctor in this area. But thankfully, you can just go to Google and type it in. And if you want to look at pictures, then your heart's delight. You can go do it. <laughs> but um, I'm kind of interested, but not interested enough. So I'll give you the terminology, and you can look it up. So psoriasis is a skin disease of Chapter 13. They think favis is a skin disease, and I did not look that one up. That's kind of a nasty one. Um, it shows up on the head a lot, and it looks like you're turning into a reptile. So the reality is that might be favis. And the other one is vitiligo. Um, and then the other one is leucoderma. Okay? So these are the different skin diseases that some doctors. Other doctors said, no, that's not those at all, because it da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The reality is all these skin diseases are bad, and you don't want to get any of them. This is what God is dealing with. So Yahweh declares that if someone had a swelling, a scab, or a bright spot on their skin, then he or she was required to go to the priest for inspection. If the priest saw that the hair had turned white, and that the problem was deeper than the skin, then the person was declared unclean, and the whiteness of the hair might have been due to the scales of the skin flicking off. Not that you're literally turning, your hair is turning white, but that your skin is flaking off to such a degree, it's clinging to your hair and it looks white. And so that's the reality. If it's a scab, if it's red, if it's swelling, or your skin's falling off your body, you were to immediately go to the priest. If the priest knows that it was spreading, swelling up, or going deeper than the skin, then he would declare you unclean. 
That was his primary job. That's the extent of his expertise. If that was true, if, this per, if the priest didn't see um, either of these signs, then the person's quarantined. No matter what, you always get quarantined, just in case. So you go to the priest, you have to know, like, maybe, maybe not, you're automatically going to get quarantined. At that point, you're removed from the camp. So, when we, so basically, you have the tabernacle, the Levites camp around the tabernacle, the 12 tribes camp around them, and everything else is outside the camp, unclean. And so you go live outside the camp for a week. After a week, you come back to the priest upon a second inspection. This time he's determining, is it spreading? Is it getting worse? Is your flesh beginning to rot and fall off? That kind of stuff. If there was no change, then he was quarantined for another week, just to make sure. Then he would come back on a third inspection, and if there was no change, or the spot had begun to fade or go away, then he was declared clean. So two weeks quarantine, three inspections. If it just stays exactly the same or it begins to decrease, you are now able to be declared clean. At that point, you were to come back in and they were to wash their complete body before they ever went back home, which we know today that's a good thing. However, if it had been spread and it was getting worse, you're declared unclean, you had to stay out of the camp. And you would stay out of the camp, outside the camp for the rest of your life if this thing never got better. That's just the reality. They don't know how to cure it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's hard to stay outside the camp for the rest of your life. You're not being fed. Your family members would come and feed you and that kind of stuff, and they would take care of you. And if you got enough unclean person, like, you might be there like, oh, yay, another unclean person. (laughs) You kind of form (laughs) your own little community. And remember, we're... Yes, there is a certain sense of like, this is incredibly depressing because you don't get to be with your spouse or your children or your mom or your dad or your brother or sister, whatever you're leaving behind. And it kind of stinks to be living out there on your own. But at the same time, you also realize that this is a culture that was incredibly community-oriented. And so even though you're declared unclean, your loved ones still loved you. They came out and took care of you. They didn't have to drive across town to get to you. I mean, they just had to go outside the tents. And two, you would begin to form your own community because you have to remember that you're not going into this unclean area with a whole bunch of people that you have no idea. You've seen all these people at one time or the other, and you've traded with them because we're not talking about a large nation here. We're talking about a nation where everybody knows everybody and everybody is communal with everybody and everybody is completely dependent upon each other. So there's going to be people that you know and you're connected to. And so in some ways, yes, it is depressing. It is sad. Um, but in other ways, it's probably a lot better than a lot of options that we have in America now, um, where a lot of times you're on your own. Now, and I know in some ways you think, wow, God, why would you do that? But that's no different than people who spend the rest of their life in the hospital with leukemia um, or in nursing homes or that kind of stuff. I mean, the reality is we're not equipped to take care of people in our homes. And if somebody is really, truly dying of cancer or they can't breathe on their own, they spend months upon months and upon months in hospitals or in clinics and stuff. And that's still very sad and very depressing, but the reality is that's the only place that can take care of them. The reality is that's no different. The reality is when people are dying of these kind of things, even today, there's nothing we can do. 
There's nothing we can do. And that's the result of living in a fallen, sinful world. And yes, we can do everything we can to comfort people and feed them and find cures if we have them. They probably had their own form of medicine back then. But God is not writing a medical book for them. And so they would do the best of the ability that they can and ask God why, as we do the best of the ability we can with our treatments and ask God why. It's just they had a little bit less than us. And so in that sense, they're unclean. And this is to protect the community from an outbreak. Because as much as it's very depressing that somebody who has a skin disease is locked up inside of a room with plastic bags and zippers and they can only have people in rubber suits come and talk to them, we'd much rather them be there than them walk out and then they all... Because anybody know what wiped out two-thirds of Europe back in the medieval period? The black or bubonic plague. What was that? A skin disease. Now, here's what's interesting. This is a little scientific historical note. Did you know that the medical community had no idea throughout all of history that you should probably wash yourself? Bathing was considered a luxury, but not a scientific necessity. In the late, late 1800s, late 1800s, a doctor came along and said, wow, I think there might be this thing Thing that we can't see. Now, he didn't know to call it bacteria or anything like that, but he said, what if there's something that's actually causing sicknesses? You see, a lot of doctors would actually like go to a patient and cut their leg off or like handle a dead body and rip their guts out and look at it and that kind of stuff. And without washing their hands, they would go and deliver a baby. And the mortality rate of children and mothers was very high. I mean, lots of people were dying in childbirth and other things because nobody washed their hands. I mean, they might just to kind of get the ickiness and the blood off, but not like an intentional antibacterial kind of a way. So some doctor says maybe the reason a lot of these child, children are dying, that kind of stuff, and one of the things that he looked at was the Jewish community. Now, the Jewish community had not accepted Christ as their Savior, but they were still following Leviticus. And they were not having the same death rates of children and mothers and other people that the Christians in a civilized medieval Europe were having. And so he looked at them, and he noticed how often they washed in so many ways. And he said, what if we did that? The entire medical community laughed at him. I forget what his name was, but you could Google that one too. Okay? They laughed at him. Lester. Okay, there you go. Thank you. They laughed at him. This is the late 1800s. I mean, like just a little bit more than 100 years ago. And they're laughing at him. So he begins to wash his hands. And the rate, that, like the mothers and the children that were surviving like quadrupled all the other doctors. And they're like, wow, you might be onto something. Science. It took them thousands of years to catch up with the laws of Leviticus. Now, you have to understand something. I truly believe that all science is from God. I'm not trying to pit science against the Bible and say, like, oh, you're either spiritual or you're scientific, but there's, that's not my point. I'm saying that scientists trying to figure out science were not catching up because the science has always been there. God has always, he wove the science, scientific principles into the creation at the very beginning. It's always been there. We're the ding-dongs who can't figure it out, Okay. 
So I'm not trying to pit science against the Bible, I'm just saying scientists took a long time to catch up with the scientific principles that got it already woven into the Bible. So a lot of times when you feel like scientists are making you feel like an idiot, oh, this guy has got multiple PhDs and he tells me it's stupid to believe in creation or of intelligent design, just remind them that it was just a little over 100 years ago that they figured out you should be washing your hands. Okay, and yet the Bible said that. Darwin also said that flies spontaneously came into existence because he didn't know anything about larvae. Okay, so you have to realize that there's a lot, of, I mean, they changed their mind on whether cats can see black and white or not every single decade, it feels like. So you have to realize that, like, they're catching up. And now that we've discovered quantum physics, oh my gosh, it's blowing the roof off of everything. So the reality is the Bible's always been doing this. The other thing that's interesting is, do you know who did not die in the bubonic plague? The Jews. Because the Levitical law said, don't dump your waste where you live. Take your waste outside the camp and dump it outside the camp. And when you come back in, wash, 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 wash. Wash after this discharge, wash after a period, wash after you give birth, wash after you touch a dead body. The Europeans didn't do that. They touched bed. I mean, they went around with wagons and just picked the dead bodies up and put them on there. That part Monty Python got right. And they would go through there <laughs> looking for the dead, and then they would just go and touch people. And then people would like literally be walking the streets, and then a, a bucket of urine and feces would be dumped out of the window right into the street. And they wondered why disease just went rampant. The Jews did not get affected by the bubonic plague. They were the only ones. Unfortunately, the enlightened Christians thought that they were had a pact with the devil because they thought the disease was a result of the devil and the devil attacking them. And so when the Jews weren't dying, they're like, they're in league with the devil. So they started burning the Jews alive for being in league with the devil. And so the reality is you have to realize that the Jews have often been protected by a lot of things because they did not know why, but they learned their lesson that you follow Leviticus because when we didn't follow Leviticus last time, we went into exile. And we're not going to make that mistake again. Unfortunately, they went so extreme that the law became their god. But they also were protective from a lot of things. Science took a long time to catch up with this, or scientists took a long time to catch up with these principles and ideas. This is what God is commanding. Quarantine is important. Quarantine is important. And that's what the, Jew, the other thing. If they did get an outbreak, they would quarantine them off. We didn't know to quarantine back then. And so, yes, this seems kind of harsh, but the Jews have had a lot more people survive over the thousands of years than the non-Jews did because they did what God commanded, period. Now, today, we know that. Now we don't need Leviticus because now we actually know this stuff, but we had to figure it out on our own because, God forbid, we read Leviticus. That's boring and outdated and barbaric. There is a health sense to this, but remember this is primarily a theological book than a scientific book, although the science is solid when God talks about it. He goes on and says that the flesh is raw, then you go through the same procedure. If a person has a boil for the head and the beard, if the hair was yellowish or the infection was deeper than the surface, then the person was unclean. If they had white spots, that did not go deeper than the skin, then they were declared clean. If they were bald, they were declared clean. The reality is back then, they didn't know why the hair was falling out. That, that would be kind of scary. And the reality is that God is saying, don't worry, that's just kind of natural. They were quarantined, 
to protect themselves. Now, if they were unclean and they were came into the camp for whatever reason, God did not forbid they weren't it's not like they weren't ever allowed to ever come back into the camp. But when they did come in the camp, they were to tear their clothes, throw dirt on their head, and make sure everybody knew that they were unclean. So that's the unclean. Yahweh deals with mold. Now this is how you know that leprosy is not mine. Because the same word, tesarat, that is used for the skin disease is the exact same word that is used for the mold in clothing. So God is not talking about leprosy in a scientific way. He's talking about the things that rot. Now, our best understanding is that this is mold. We could be wrong, and it's not mold. But given what we know throughout all the years, mold seems to be the only thing that really truly attacks clothing and fabric and that kind of stuff. Now God goes to the the fabric and says, what if your fabric has been contaminated? And the good thing in this sense, you're not really looking for a cure for your fabric unless it's your favorite shirt. So he talks about the warp and the woof of the clothing. We don't really know what that means. Our best guess is the warp is the vertical weaving and the woof is the horizontal weaving in clothing based on how it's used in other places and that kind of stuff, but we're not sure. And we don't know whether the warp and the woof, woof is the, um, the vertical and the horizontal before it's woven or the vertical and horizontal after it's woven. Most likely it's after it's woven, because there's a sense of the garment having to be ripped and burned and that kind of stuff, and you don't really do that with yarn. God is interested in this. Now, to this day, too, we know that not all molds are bad in a really scary sense, but at the same time, if you've got a moldy towel or a moldy wash rag, that's not going to be healthy. But the more extreme one is black mold. And black mold will mess you up if you're breathing that for a long time period. There was a woman that I knew that was in our church and she was staying in a friend's basement for several months, and it was a finished basement, and she was just sick all the time and really struggling. And she ended up moving out um, because she was able to move on with life and get her own place and that kind of stuff. And she got better. I mean, really sick, like missing a lot of work and that kind of stuff, even in the danger of losing her job. And she got better over a long period of time, and they're like, huh. So they decided they wanted to remodel their basement, and they ripped all the drywall off, and there was black mold on all the walls. And then they didn't know that. With mold, black mold is dangerous. Black mold is very dangerous. And God is protecting them from that. But once again, he's showing that this can contaminate everything. It contain, sin contaminates everything in your life. And so once again, you go through the same procedure of quarantine, and the priest looks at it and determines whether it's spreading. And second inspection, if it spreads... And then if it doesn't spread, then you're allowed to wash the garment. And after you wash the garment, then a week later it gets inspected again. If nothing's come back, then you're allowed to keep the garment. If it does come back or it just keeps spreading, then you're required to burn the garment and get rid of it and tear the fabric. If you were declared clean and allowed back into the community, then the newly declared clean person was to come in and kill a bird and bleed it out into a clay vessel over fresh water. So you have a fresh water vessel and you bleed out the bird into it and you would then take this fabric and a piece of cedar would be thrown in, a little red piece of fabric would be thrown in, and twigs of a hispus branch, which is kind of an evergreen, 
would be dipped into it, this concoction. You would then take the blood and you would sprinkle the blood seven times um, over the bird and the live bird, and then you would release the live bird and let it fly away. Sounds like the, the Day of Atonement. In the Day of Atonement, we're going to learn about one goat being killed and the other goat being let go. And a lot of scholars may think that the same idea is being um, there, that the one bird is taking your skin disease and flying away from you, and the other bird is dying for your skin disease. And so that's what you would do. And so this represents the new life that you're going to have because you are now declared clean. Then, after you did that, you're required to wash all your clothes and you had to shave all the hair off your body. And then you were to bathe yourself. This is the and this probably be our probably my best guess with this is that this is a an ancient form of exfoliation, um, just making sure that everything's clean and that kind of stuff. Today they just put you up against the wall with a big giant scrub brush and to scrub your body down and make it all raw. Then they were allowed to enter the camp, but they had to remain outside their tent for seven days. So you're now allowed back into the camp, but they would set up a little camp or a little tent outside your tent. And you were allowed to you were allowed to live in that. Once you that week came up, um, you were declared king, king, clean, and you were allowed to come back in. Now, once again, this may feel like a bunch of overkill to us, but we do the same thing to this day. Okay, if you've seen people go through quarantines, the difference is we just lather you up with antibacterial medicines and, and antibiotics and that kind of stuff, but. We also know that too much antibacterial medicine can also be very dangerous to you. Then, on the eighth day, because eighth is the symbolic meaning of new beginnings, the one being cleansed was to offer a burnt offering in order to be restored to fellowship with Yahweh in the sanctuary. The blood of the sacrifice was placed on the ear, the hand, and the foot to represent the whole body was now with God, and then he was to be anointed with oil, which represents the blessing of the Spirit. And then he was allowed back in. And notice how there is a sense of scientific, biological medicine of washing and cleansing, but there's also the religious sense of sacrifices and that kind of stuff. And so what God is saying is that one of the things that we've lost in a modern-day society is that nothing is ever just physical and nothing is ever just spiritual. Everything is spiritual and physical. And we have created a false dichotomy, dichotomy between body and spirit. And that's kind of a result of Gnosticism and mystery religions and all that kind of stuff, but that's a whole other lesson. Um, but the reality is God never intended you to ever see anything separate in your life. Because remember, separate is death. God never meant you to separate your personal life from your public life, your work from your religious life, your spiritual from your physical life. Nothing was ever meant to be separated in any kind of a way. And the fact that God is focusing on their bodies as well as their dwelling places and their houses is trying to show them that this is all seen as one thing. And it's really trying to connect the idea of the tent where they live, the tent where God lives, and their own body all together as one unified thing. And that's kind of what I just said. There is no sense of church, work, home, and body all being separate. It's all one thing. And I think if we really think about it, we know that if there's something physical in your life wrong, 
it affects every part of your life. It affects your job, it affects your life, it affects your relationships, it affects your prayer life. There's something wrong with you spiritually. We know that that can, and you're not confessing sin. It affects your stress levels and your ulcers. And then there's physical problems that begin to crop up. And then eventually it bleeds out into relationships. And it's really kind of ignorant of us to think that we can keep these things all separate from each other. When we know that if there is a problem in one area, it always, always goes into every other area. Some problems take longer than others, but eventually everything is being touched. And so that's the other point that God is trying to communicate here is that we, everything, everything is a holistic thing in our life. Everything. There's never supposed to be separation between anything in our life. And if we could think more like that, that would change the way that we see ourselves at work, the way that we see ourselves in our family, the way that we see ourselves in our church, the way that we see our public life versus our private life. That it really everything is connected. Does this make sense?